There was a lot of suspicion at the time that he was part of a cadre of retired Pakistani intelligence officers who were secretly coordinating an effort to assist the Afghan Taliban against Afghan forces, against NATO, against the US. Welcome to the Pen and Sword podcast from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Emily Donahue. There is a place set among enemies that stretches from the foothills of the mighty Himalayas to the Arabian Sea. It's an ancient land, once home to great empires and emperors, a place of traditions old and new, of great beauty and history and struggle and chaos. The country is a place that my guest found both magnificent and terrifying, in which he made great friends and lost many as well. This place is Pakistan. The author is Declan Walsh, and his book is The Nine Lives of Pakistan, Dispatches from a Precarious State. Mr. Walsh, thank you so much for being on the Pen and Sword podcast. Hey, Emily, it's great to be here, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, I took my inspiration from your book in many ways, felt a little bit like a love letter and sad reckoning. You worked as a journalist in Pakistan for nearly 10 years, a Westerner reporting in a place that is in many ways unknowable and yet all too familiar given the headlines. Can we start a little bit with what you loved about the country? There was a lot that I loved. Um, you know, when I got there in the beginning, I arrived in 2004 and at that time, Pakistan was a little bit off the pace as an international story. Um, you know, the, the Iraq war had just started a year earlier. Um, even in that part of the world, a lot of Western attention or a lot of the enthusiasm of other foreign correspondents was actually directed across the border in Afghanistan. You know, this country where elections were starting to take place, the Taliban were you know, really on the outs at that point in, in Afghanistan. And Pakistan was seen as this, you know, in contrast, was seen as this country that was, as you say, a little bit obscure, um, hard to know exactly what the Pakistanis stood for, um, was run by this military leader, Pervez Musharraf, who claimed to be an ally of the West. But at the same time, there were these signs that maybe he wasn't entirely all that. And so, I arrived there and there was a real sense of a country that was sort of in between periods. Um, and about two, three, you know, it, I very quickly, though, came to a realization that it was, number one, a far more interesting place than it appeared to be and a far more complex place, but in a good way. Um, and then secondly, you know, events just started to take off from about 2007. There were these huge um street protests that erupted against Musharraf. And that was the start of a cascade of incredibly dramatic events that um, swept the country up and swept along reporters like me who were lucky enough to be living there at the time. So partly what you know drew me to the Pakistan initially was getting caught up in this big dramatic story about um, you know, street movements to overthrow military rulers, about the assassination of Benazir Bhutto, the opposition leader of this Taliban insurgency inside Pakistan that erupted in the tribal belt um, and then suddenly spread across, pretty much across the entire country. Um, and of course, in a way, culminated, I guess, with the um, American operation to uh, locate and kill Osama bin Laden in 2011. But 
aside, you know, my professional interest, there was just a, an awful lot of things about the country that appealed to me in a personal way. Um, I'm from Ireland, and as I was growing up, stories about South Asia and about India and the Raj were not really part of my cultural hinterland in the same way that they would have been, for instance, for my British friends. And so I had come to the country with a bit of a clean slate. I didn't know a whole lot about it. And pretty soon I started to see some parallels with my own country, with Ireland, you know, a country where Catholicism, of course, played a huge role uh, for many, many decades in the post-independence period, um, you know, where the, the, the relationship between religion and the state was very contested for a very long time and arguably had a lot of pernicious effects um you know we ireland was also a country that was very much formed and scarred by a bloody partition at the end of british rule and so i saw all of these parallels with 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 the country that i came from and then lastly i would say you know the the great thing that um endeared me to pakistan was the sort of access i found myself having to a whole wide range of people inside the country, you know, people from, uh, um, uh, you know, villagers in the most rural places and sometimes in the most desperate circumstances, all the way up to people in the cabinet were willing to talk to me. And, you know, they were, you know, they were open to talking to a curious foreigner like me. And they were also just the most fascinating characters in themselves. As you know, as a journalist, if you have access and you have great characters, you know, that's half of your job done right there. <laughs> as you mentioned, you worked there during a time of pretty significant events and change, not to be repetitive, but war, the reign of the Taliban, a burgeoning democracy, the beginning of a free press. Um, but it was also quite a dangerous place at that time as well. When you were there, what do you think were its biggest challenges? Well, as a reporter, it was it became increasingly dangerous as the Taliban insurgency took hold. When, when I got there, Islamabad, the capital, which you visited, was actually known for being at a reputation for being this very sleepy place. You know, it was a, it's a new capital. It was built in the 1960s. Um, compared to most of Pakistan cities, it's very quiet and sedate and relatively orderly. Uh, There was a joke that used to go around that Islamabad was um, half the size of uh, of 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 a New York graveyard and twice as dead. So you know <laughs> there, there was this real sense that Islamabad, the capital, was kind of um, you know isolated from the rest of the country. As this insurgency took off, these bombs started to go off across the country, and including in Islamabad, and including actually quite close to the house where I lived. Hmm. Um, and I lived in a very, you know, well-to-do uh, residential area, in, pretty close to the center of the city. So that was just a mark of, you know, the sort of challenges that we were facing as reporters, but also, of course, that Pakistanis themselves were, were facing. And then the other, um, you know, significant challenge that came along as time went on was that, you know, as in Iraq and Afghanistan, Western reporters started to be seen by some of the protagonists in these conflicts that were playing out, cultural conflicts or violent conflicts, started to be seen as potential targets for kidnapping. And so, you know, that obviously limits your access because uh, naturally, you know, one starts to think twice about talking to certain people or going certain places. When you were there, Pakistan was considered one of the least safe places in the world for journalists. Uh, before we get into the details of your book, being a journalist, and as things got worse there, 
What was that like? I was very fortunate to have a man called Ismail Jan who who worked with me on most of the trips I did in the most contentious parts of the country. He was this um, Pashtun man. He still works as a, as a driver in Islamabad. He has his own small cab company. And he was from the areas where, in the northwest and the largely Pashtun areas, where a lot of the trouble was springing from, at least. And so, you know, through Ismail, um, you know, using him and using other people I knew, I really just took a lot of advice everywhere I went. I used contacts. Um, you know, we didn't, as, as reporters, there, there was no question of using any sort of outside security. Um, you know, there were budgetary reasons for that, I guess. But frankly, I'm not sure that it would have even been all that wise. Um, just in the yeah, sense it would, that it would have made you a, a target. Even it would have made you a target, and also at this at this time in Pakistan, in particular, there was a lot of suspicion of Westerners um, that they were somehow fifth columnists. Um, you know, there was a lot of paranoia in Pakistan about um, American groups like Blackwater. There was, you know, there were suggestions that the U.S. government had deployed the the, the Blackwater contractors to Pakistan. There was a lot of talk about that in the Pakistani press. Um, and, and there is a lot of, you know, conspiracy-driven speculation in the Pakistani press and, 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 and indeed in society in general. And so, you know, as, as a Westerner, I think, as a Western reporter, you know, the best you could do to protect yourself was really to take a lot of advice and also to, you know, avoid any associations that might lead people to, you know, to suspect you uh, of being an agent of a foreign government or of, you know, being someone that was worth um, kidnapping particularly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The culture is ancient. The country itself is quite young. Uh, there's a juxtaposition of modernity and history, uh, new political ideology, religion. Do you think those contribute to the country's challenges? Oh, undoubtedly. The, the, the whole question about you know religious identity and Islam is not at the heart of every problem in Pakistan, but it's certainly you know, behind many of the big challenges that the country faces. You know, here's this country that in 1947 was forged from uh, the partition of India, the partition of British India, as it was known then. And it was formed on this idea that Hindus and, and Muslims could not live together as side by side as communities and that therefore Muslims needed a homeland of their own in the northern and in the eastern part of India, or what was then India, that they that they needed to break away, forge their own homeland in order to ensure their security and their prosperity and their um, political rights, if you like. That was the founding idea of Pakistan, and of course, the, within that was this idea that they were that they were Muslims and this would be a Muslim majority country. But from the get go. Uh, Pakistan's founding father, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, a barrister, um, was never very clear about what exact role Islam would play in the running of the country or in the formation of its laws or in the application of the laws. And so there, there started this ambiguity that really has been exploited by extremists, by indeed by Pakistani army generals, by uh, Pakistani politicians, by many people over the decades uh, to their own means. It, it's, religion has been used to fight wars, to win elections, um, 
to mount mass street demonstrations. Um, and really, that has had so many second-order effects for the way that people think about some fundamental ideas about the way that their their society and their state has organized. And it's also given space for extremists to gain ground and to establish themselves. And so, you know, when I got there in the late two th- in the mid-2000s, rather, you know, this is the post-9-11 period. And as I said, when I got there, it seemed rather quiet. But in retrospect, and when I sat down to write the book, it really became clear to me that it was, this, it was the calm before the storm when many of these tensions that had been brewing inside Pakistani society for decades uh, were suddenly about to come to a head. And in a mm-hmm. way, that's where the story started for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Pakistan itself is geopolitically strategic. The U.S., China, Iran have interests there. There are religious, you know, as we talked about, religious extremists who have interests there. Each one is trying to outmaneuver the other. You at one point described the U.S. and Pakistan relationship as a sort of forced bad marriage. Talk to me about Pakistan's geopolitical relationship with the West. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of these countries, a little bit like Afghanistan to the north, that has really, you know, whose leaders have always understood that they occupy quite valuable geostrategic real estate. Pakistan has China on one side, India on the other, Iran on the other. Um, and, you know, from the get-go, its leaders have always sought in, in their relations with the West to exploit that value, if you like, to position itself as a country that was worthy, that need, that deserved strong allies who were going to support it. And, you know, the relationship with the US is so interesting because, you know, right from in, in the 1940s or the early 50s, when Pakistan was just getting going, you know, Britain, which had been the colonial power, was receding. Britain was this country that was, you know, just come out of the Second World War, burdened with debt, trying to divest itself of a lot of its colonial um, holdings, if you like. And so it's receding from the picture and the US steps in. And Pakistan and the US initially had, I mean, it wasn't an easy relationship from the start, but they did have common interests in the Cold War. Um, you know, the US cited uh, intelligence and eavesdropping assets in Pakistan in the 50s. Um, the uh, the famous U-2 spy plane carrying Gary Powers mm-hmm. that was shot down over the Soviet Union I believe in 1960, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, that that plane actually took off from an airbase in northern Pakistan in Peshawar. And so, you know, you see these two countries that at the very least have a shared interest in, in, in opposing the Soviet Union. And that relationship really climaxed in the 1980s with the war in Afghanistan and the CIA and the ISI, that's Pakistan's spy service, cooperating very closely to effectively run this giant guerrilla insurgents war against the against the Soviet Union that that triumphed in, in nineteen eighty nine with the with the withdrawal of the Soviets. Um, so you know you see at that period these two countries coming together, but in the post two thousand and one period, uh, uh, you know they well they had a period of estrangement in the nineteen nineties over Pakistan's nuclear program, and then in two thousand and after two thousand and one they come together again. But the strain started to show, and it became clear that while Pakistan and the U.S. had 
still had certain shared interests, it seemed that their values seemed to diverge, and particularly around the issue of uh, Islamic militancy. You know, the US, which had arguably supported Islamic militancy in the 1980s in the war in Afghanistan, you know, suddenly after 2001 uh, turned its back on any support or was, you know, launching wars against Islamic militancy. But Pakistan, while paying lip service to its relationship with the US and while paying lip service to the idea that it shared that war, actually had a far more ambiguous position because these many of these same groups or some of these groups had been very successful for Pakistan and foreign policy for many decades in fighting in supporting groups that fought in Afghanistan, supporting groups that fought in Kashmir against India. And so you see in the 2000s, the Pakistani military, on the one hand, taking a lot of American aid, billions of dollars in aid, um, you know, cooperating in the hunt for al-Qaeda fugitives, uh, but quietly maintaining support for other groups which were seen to be sympathetic or useful to Pakistan's interests, such as the groups that were fighting in Kashmir, like Lashkar-e Taiba, or indeed, um, you know, the Afghan Taliban were allowed to find sanctuary in Western Pakistan. And that sanctuary in Western Pakistan was a significant part of the Taliban's resurgence in Afghanistan that we're still seeing play out now. So, you know, you, you, you see Pakistan exploiting, as you say, that geostrategic value um, it's this country that in a way set itself up as too big to fail, not just because of its neighbours, but also because it acquired a nuclear capability mm-hmm. in the late 1990s. And from the perspective of its Western allies, you see this frustration where uh, you know the US in particular wanted Pakistan to do certain things, but really in the end realised it could only get the Pakistanis to go so far. And arguably, the, you know, the nuclear capability, which of course was such a and continues, I, I suspect, to be a, a significant worry to Western policymakers and a, a framing device for the way they look at Pakistan. Probably, you know, Pakistanis themselves certainly argued that, you know, this nuclear capacity s- saved their country from being invaded in the same way that Afghanistan was, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, Western countries had to balance between what they wanted Pakistan to do, what Pakistan was prepared to do, um, and potentially doing anything that would destabilize this country that had this you know, awesome power at its disposal. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. We'll get back to our conversation with Declan Walsh and his book, The Nine Lives of Pakistan, in just a moment. But I wanted to cut away here to talk with you about Stratfor Worldview, Rain's premier geopolitical publication and a go-to source for diplomats, businesses, professionals, and individuals around the world. The real-time challenges of living in this increasingly interconnected world have rarely been more clearly on display as they have in 2020. Together, Stratfor and Rain help you understand the why behind what's happening now so that you can tackle what happens next. If you like what you heard today and would like to know more about Stratfor Worldview, consider signing up for our free newsletter. You can find details at worldview.stratfor.com. That's worldview.stratfor.com. Now, let's get back to the interview. Our conversation so far has discussed so many of the contradictions there. What is it about, if you could, if you sort of could pinpoint it, what is it about Pakistan that makes it so difficult to understand for Westerners? 
I think it's mostly the fact that there is really, like, you know, every country has so many different facets. But I think in Pakistan, those distinctions are very sharp. And there is really not one Pakistan, but there are many Pakistans. There are, you know, there is, there is the Pakistan of the relationship with militant Islam. There is also the Pakistan of the conflict between um, a very powerful and often overweening military and a very flawed but quite feisty civilian-led democracy or a form mm. of democracy as well. Um, you know, th- there is a country that um, is based on Islam, united by a religion, and yet sometimes seems to be torn apart by it or torn apart by the argument over the religion. You know, Emily, one of the old saws about Pakistan is that the three things that, the three uniting factors, people say, are religion, um, the military, and cricket. And honestly, Mm -hmm. I think you could probably make a very strong case that all Pakistanis are united by cricket. Um, But religion and the army, I think, are far more contentious ideas. So it's this country that, on the one hand, you know, is beset by these battles over its identity and over the most fundamental things about how it should be run, who who should be in charge, um, you know, is it a democracy, what is the place of the military and so on. And yet, and this is, I think, the really fascinating thing about it, you know, it's this country that despite so many predictions of its failure over the, not just over the years, but over the decades, it always kind of stumbles on. And you, when you live there in particular, you become aware that in some respects anyway, is, is very impressive. And so, you know, when I sat down to write the book, it was, I was hoping anyway to give a sense of both the perils and the problems, but also to try and unpick a little bit what kept it ticking along despite all. Well, your book is actually about nine lives. You tell the story of people you met while you were a correspondent there. It seemed to me that each one represented a sort of different strand of the complicated web that you just described. Tell me if you have a favorite, which one was your favorite? Oh, gosh. I'd, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd, I, 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 I'd be loath to pick one single one out in particular, but I will point to... So the, the approach, when I started to write the book, I thought, how do I render some of this complexity that we've been talking about so far? And my initial approach to the book was thematic, which is a little bit more classic, classical, you know, to talk maybe a chapter about politics, maybe a chapter about religion or the army or society and so on. And I started down that road and then it occurred to me, you know, and I was trying to do this in a way that it would reach as broad a readership as possible. There are so many great books that have been written about Pakistan by specialists in any of these fields. And, I, but, and I've read a lot of them, but I really was hoping to write something that would reach, a, 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 reach, reach, reach people who may know something about the basics of the country, but, you know, be puzzled about how how all of this fits together. So I started with these themes and then realized that that wasn't really serving my purpose. And I thought about how I had really felt that I was at least, at least felt like I was starting to come to grips with the country. And I realized that it was through encounters with just a handful of people um, 
who, again, were these Pakistanis who were often in extraordinary circumstances, were incredibly colourful individuals and who, you know, allowed me open the doors of their homes and their offices. They brought me along for rides in their vehicles. And, you know, they kind of let me witness their lives unfolding during this period of great flux. And it was through those encounters that I realised kind of intuitively I was starting to get to grips with the country. And I would say the first person that I really had that feeling with is one of the characters in this book. He's a, he's a man called Anwar Kamal Khan. N- nobody outside of Pakistan, and very few people indeed even inside Pakistan, had much heard of him. He, he was a politician from uh, northwest Pakistan. He came from a very rural part of what was then known as Northwest Frontier Province on the border with Afghanistan. Um, he was this, you know, garrulous, um, entertaining, uh, uh, loquacious politician who, a sort of a constituency politician who uh, had trained as a barrister but ran a um, ran a very colourful uh, political life in this very remote part of northwestern Pakistan. And so I was introduced to him through a friend. I went to see him in his house in Peshawar, which is the regional capital. And I was sitting in his um, dining room and he, you know, he invited me in and he, is, he was this kind of large man with a twirly mustache and a, and a gravelly voice. And he said, sit, sit here, you know, I'm going to go and get some tea or organize some tea. So he disappeared. And I'm sitting in his um, living room and I see on the table before me this small book of photographs, like a Kodak photo album. And sort of photo album you would have, you know, um, photos of children, you know, of your grandchildren. In. And I start flicking through it and I see this is pictures of men carrying guns. And there, a lot of them are sort of, you know, posing with these huge weapons, including like an anti-aircraft gun. And in these photos, there's also the guy that I'm interviewing at his house in a very kind of tony part of Peshawar. <laughs> and um, and he's he's sort of grinning with all of these gunmen and so on. So when he came back in, I said, What's, what are all these photos about? And he tells me, well, you know, in, in my constituency, my job is not just being a politician, but it's also in leading my people. And we have a lot of feuds with people from other places nearby, our neighboring tribes or neighboring villages. And sometimes we prosecute these feuds with um, you know, with violent confrontations. So <laughs> he started telling me about that. And then he, he said, well, why don't you come down and I'll come to my village and you can see some of this firsthand. And so we went down to, he, a few days later, I found myself going down to where he came from. And suddenly this door opens into this world. And it turns out that at that particular moment, the biggest threat that they faced in his area was not these feuds, which in many cases had been going on for decades, but was actually the threat of these fighters that were spilling over the border from the tribal areas nearby uh, in the form of the Taliban, and they were starting to carry out attacks in the area. You know, here's this amazing guy. You know, this is not your classic politician by any means. He has a a very unusual relationship, some very unusual ideas, I would say, about, you know, the, the rule of law, about the use of tribal justice, about the application of violence, about the role of the state, all of these things, highly unusual. But, you know, he was willing to let me in. He was, um, you know, happy to answer my questions. He let me stay in his house. And then uh, he provided a way of, you know, kind of having a front row seat in this 
bigger battle that was playing out the country in the time where this insurgency was springing out of the tribal belt and, and spilling over into the what are known as the settled areas. That The tribal belt is, is along the border with Afghanistan and then the settled areas in the northwest frontier is just the regular parts of the, of the, of the province that are under the constitution of Pakistan. So, and this man found himself at the, the forefront of efforts to push it back. And mm-hmm. I was off. Whose story did you find the most challenging to tell? Um, that's an excellent question. Um, there were a couple that were that were quite that were quite hard. Um, I would say one of the trickiest to tell was was about a former Pakistani spy, a man called Colonel Imam, who had been a uh, a major figure in Pakistan's effort in the nineteen eighties. Uh, against the against the Soviets in Afghanistan, uh, he had been a um, a trainer for the ISI. He had run this network of training cam- guerrilla training camps along the border with Afghanistan um, that sent thousands and thousands of um, fighters across the border to fight and eventually defeat the, the Russians. At that period in the eighties, he'd worked very closely with the U.S. government. As, as all of the Pakistani intelligence services did with the CIA. Um, but then as time went on, he turned out to, he, he was also someone who had very close relations with um, who, militant leaders who were later sort of deemed to be extremists. And he was seen as a, as a fellow traveler with some of those extremists. And at the time that I met him, he, here was this man who in a way presented an enigma. He was, he, he, he had retired from uh, military duty. He'd retired from the ISI, but was still very vocally speaking out in favor of the, of the Afghan Taliban, saying that he sympathized with them. He thought that they were very admirable fighters. He would go on Pakistani TV and say these things. Um, and that he wished them well in their fight against the Americans. So there was there was a lot of suspicion at the time that he was part of a cadre of retired Pakistani intelligence officers who were leading, who were sort of secretly coordinating an effort to assist the Afghan Taliban in their fight against uh, the Afghan forces, against NATO, against the US in, in Afghanistan. So he was, from the get-go, you know, I was drawn to him because he was this person who had this larger than life legend that went back to the 1980s was this famous guy but also was a very enigmatic figure in the period when we were there mm-hmm. and as the book relates um he he um in you know i i met him i think first in 2005 and i kept meeting him until about 2000 and late 2010 and then in early 2000 early 2010 i believe he um he went off on a trip to Waziristan. So that's the part of the tribal belt that is the most dangerous area. And it's the place where the greatest number of militants were concentrated. Um, he went off there ostensibly as someone who was helping a British journalist, a British Pakistani filmmaker who wanted to make a documentary in the tribal belt. But very quickly, um, their group became kidnapped. And mm-hmm. Colonel Imam was taken by 
uh, a splinter group of the Pakistani Taliban. And so from everything I've told you so far, you might reasonably suppose that Colonel Imam was someone who you know, might have had an easy time with his captors or might have been able to talk his way out of trouble given his history with these groups. Uh, but in fact, the opposite happened. He, um, he, he, he was treated very badly in captivity. Um, he was uh, accused by the Taliban effectively for, of being a traitor to their cause. And he was, after about uh, nine months in captivity, he was taken up into up a snowy pass um, and he was shot dead um, in a videotaped execution that the Taliban later released. Mm-hmm. So it took me quite, I, I had known this man in when I was in Pakistan and then after I left the country I started to try and piece together the story of what had happened to him in that last journey, how it had happened that this man who sometimes had been known as the father of the Taliban or as someone who'd, been, who'd helped to create these extremists, how and why he had, uh, he had been executed by them uh, in the end. Your own story is a fascinating element of this book. You were expelled in 2013, I think it was. You describe early in your book, for reasons that you found hard to pin down, um, without revealing too much, can you tell us a little bit about your story of being expelled and how it affected your your experience there? Sure. So for me, the, it really just started three days before the election in 2013. Um, it, it, in many ways, it was a very hopeful time for the country. It, a, a civilian, Pervez Musharraf, the military leader, had been kicked out five years earlier. The country had just gone through one civilian government and now was about to hold an election uh, where power would be transferred from one elected government that had served its term to another one. And in Pakistani terms, in a country that, in, that has had so many military takeovers, this was a hugely hopeful moment. So entirely out of the blue, three days before uh, this election took place, I was in Islamabad at a social function, and I was summoned back to my house by someone calling from an unknown number, at midnight and they said you need to come home now so I arrived home to find a truckload of policemen outside my house um, and then this one gentleman who was not in uniform stepped forward with a letter and the letter simply said that I my visa was being cancelled immediately on account of what I called my undesirable activities um, and that I had 72 hours to leave the country so uh, very briefly um, all of this is recounted in the book, but I, I, uh, I, I tried to get this decision rescinded, um, failed, uh, did some reporting on the election in my last day in the country and then eventually got taken into custody and I was held for about 12 hours in a hotel room before they drove me to the airport and um, sent me on my way. And I've not been back since. Um, and so, you know, th- in a way this became a, a starting point for the book as well because I had been trying to... Um, it really crystallized for me a lot of things I'd been considering about how Pakistan worked. I learned very quickly that even though the government or the interior ministry was technically the people who wrote me the expulsion letter, in fact, it was the spy service, the ISI, who who was behind it. Hmm. Um, and as I, you know, as I remember, as I sat in Lahore Airport waiting to be uh, put on a plane, I um, it really brought it home to me, you know, even in this moment of democratic flourishing in Pakistan, apparent democratic flourishing, uh, when it came to certain things, you know, the ISI and the military were pretty much able to do whatever they wanted. And so it 
you know, what happened to me was small beer compared to what has happened to a lot of Pakistani journalists who've suffered far, far worse. Um, but it was indicative, to me at least, as a as an outsider, of um, a crucial thing about 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 how Pakistan worked. And so, in a, uh, having been kicked out, I um, I initially tried to get back very hard. I I, I thought that this was uh, a problem that could be solved. You know, the, so the Pakistani authorities did what often happens in these circumstances they uh, they never said no and they often sort of <laughs> you know spoke to us sympathetically and they said oh yes yes absolutely this must be some terrible misunderstanding i'm sure we can you know sort it out and then you know two or three months would go by and nothing would happen and eventually after a while we realized that there was going to be no no going back at least at least at that time most of mm -hmm. the book is about my nine my, the nine characters um but it is framed um very broadly by my expulsion and also a sort of a resolution I came to on that question. Declan Walsh is the author of The Nine Lives of Pakistan, Dispatches from a Precarious State. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Emily. You could read more about The Nine Lives of Pakistan and learn more about Pakistan's geographical and geopolitical challenges at Stratford Worldview. That's worldview.stratford.com. While you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.